Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA. We are pleased to bring you a selection of bonus episodes ahead of the launch of Season 3. In the run-up to Season 3, we'll continue to discuss key issues affecting the rural sector, such as the current environmental opportunities for landowners and the insurance factors to consider when starting projects on your land. Environmental issues, whether it be the target to reach net zero climate emissions by 2050, the decline in UK wildlife species and habitats, or the public's desire to be outside in green spaces, are an increasingly important aspect of public life. While we can all understand that the natural environment matters, in recent years something more interesting has been happening. Businesses and governments have increased their efforts to try and measure and quantify the importance of the environment to them. Whether this is healthy soil for growing food, trees that capture carbon, or providing space for wildlife, the concept of natural capital can start to put a monetary value on these benefits that nature and the environment provide. And more importantly, efforts are well underway to start to reward the careful stewardship of these natural capital assets by landowners and land managers. Here to discuss this important and timely topic, we have three very knowledgeable guests. We're joined by Harry Greenfield, the CLA's Senior Land Use Policy Advisor, BLB Forbes Adam of the Eskrick Park Estate in North Yorkshire, and Jason Bedell, Director of Research at Streatham Parker. Welcome, everybody. Thank you uh, for, for joining our podcast. Um, to start, would each of you be willing to give a very brief introduction to yourself, um, starting with you, Harry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, my name is Harry Greenfield. I work in the, the CLA. Uh, I work in the land use policy team specialising in uh, the environmental side of land use. So a lot of my time is focused on the new environmental land management schemes that the government's introducing, uh, along with new policies like biodiversity net gain. And uh, I've been leading some work within the CLA over the last couple of years looking at natural capital and how our members can can place themselves to take advantage of these new ideas. Thank you very much, Harry. And over to you, Bealby. Uh, hi there. Yeah, I'm Bealby Forbes-Adam from Eskrit Park Estate. Uh, over the course of the last year or so, I've been taking over the reins from my father, um, having worked in coffee uh, abroad and then for the last couple of years uh, with a property consultancy in the north. Eskrick has had a long history of working in conservation, uh, so I've got a great platform to work from. Uh, it's previously won the Bledisloe Gold uh, Medal. Um, we're uh, part of several agri-environment schemes um, and we have a, a great working relationship with Natural England uh, managing Skipwith Common and Recently, this led to the site's elevation to National Nature Reserve status. So, yeah, we're looking to step it up a gear going forward. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Bealby. And finally, over to you, Jason. Well, thanks, Khalid. Uh, Jason Bidell here. I've had a long-term interest in conservation. Uh, my, my doctorate was in conservation 20 long years ago. Um, I was involved in advising farmers in the States uh, on the countryside stewardship scheme first time around, so almost 20 years ago. And uh, I now um, run Stratton Parker's rural research team. 
Uh, and one of our main jobs is to, to try and provide information to the team to make sure they're as up to date as possible on farming and planning and in the, and the environment. Uh, and one of the things I've been doing for the last three years is working with uh, a firm of environmental economists called FTEC um, on trying to quantify uh, the benefits and the disbenefits, the costs um, associated with land management. And we do that through um, natural capital accounting. Fantastic. And I'm sure we'll come on to, to some of that in just a moment. Now, it's it's such a, a big topic to tackle in this episode and a very timely one indeed, particularly with COP26 just around the corner. Um, but first of all, Harry, if I can just come to you, can you start by explaining to us why the CLA thinks that natural capital is such an important area for, for its members? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, natural capital as a phrase is, is a kind of a new a new word for, for something that's been around for a long time. The CLA has been talking about the role or the importance of private sector investment and private sector rewards for environmental land management for at least 10 years. Um, so it's something that we've been talking about for a long time. But I think that the, the concept of natural capital and, and natural capital accounting is about sort of being able to quantify the, as Jason said, the benefits and the negative impacts um, both that businesses have on the environment and that the environment has on businesses. So I think for a lot of businesses, but particularly for those in the land management sector and, and farming particularly, you rely on the environment as a source of, of sort of raw materials or, or land on which to, to base your business, uh, which you expect the environment to be in a certain condition that can provide those, those benefits. And obviously what you're doing on the land also can, can have an impact on, on things like soil or water or, or wildlife. Um, so having a kind of a framework or a structure um, is important. I think it's good for our members to be able to to know in in kind of with hard data how their business interacts with the environment. I think you know often they they see themselves as good stewards of the land, but it's good to be able to quantify that and say you know, how good they are compared to other people and precisely what benefits they're they're delivering to the wider society from their land management. Um, and I think the 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 real promise is from making sure that there are rewards for that. So I think that uh, agri-environment schemes are one uh, sort of long-standing, as Jason mentioned, they've been around for, for decades and they reward farmers and land managers for delivering environmental outcomes. But I think that the direction that government policy is going is stepping things up a gear and the private sector as well are really interested in this. I think some you know, corporates and, and big business are interested in, in their environmental impacts and looking to potentially pay for people who can who can do good things for the environment and i think cla members squarely sit in that box so, so jason having heard what harry said there about you know things are really stepping up a gear uh, as far as a, from a research perspective you're, you're front and center of mapping all this new ground out in terms of getting these contracts whether it's biodiversity net gain whether it's um deals with developers or, or investors what's what's your take on the, the approach that's going to be needed now to try and um, realise some of these opportunities? Uh, well, Harry said a lot of it, I think. It's um, understanding uh, your baseline, so what you're good at, uh, what you could improve, uh, what the benefits are, what, what the costs are. Um, uh, and then I, I think the key thing is trying to identify opportunities. And there's a temptation, isn't there, to be, I suppose, I suppose slightly passive about it and wait for government schemes. Um, but a lot of businesses are now getting much more proactive and trying to engage with the private sector 
uh, and to try and solve local environmental challenges that they see, whether those are things like um, water quality or, or water quantity, flooding issues, or, or other issues like um, local emissions and air quality. And how much do we know about the um, the interplay between some government schemes and, and private deals? Will, do they sometimes conflict with one another? Do, do landowners need to turn to companies like Stratton Parker to get good sound advice before entering into new agreements? I think so. It's, it's, a, it's a new arena. Uh, and some of the um, things that we're probably going to talk about um, on this podcast, like biodiversity net gain, are, are really just evolving now. They've they've been tested uh, in some counties, but but there hasn't been a mandatory national scheme. Uh, and the government's thinking of um, uh, implementing it in a slightly different way than it's it's been implemented in the past. Uh, and that could be through you know, quite long-term agreements, 30-year agreements to provide uh, biodiversity credits um, from the land. Uh, and, and so there are a number of, you know, potential pitfalls with those kind of agreements. We've got, and, and lots of other land management firms have got experience dealing with those kind of long-term agreements. And, and we know where the pitfalls are, you know, for example, how does it affect your capital value if you want to sell the land or, or borrow against it? Um, so we, we're trying to address those kind of concerns already. Uh, that's a really interesting point. Tell us more about um, the relationship between some of these agreements and capital value. Can that sometimes cause issues or is it just a matter of, of being aware of some of the obligations you're signing up to? Uh, I think in the past there's been a concern that um, doing environmental things might reduce your capital value. So for example, if if you take agricultural land and plant it with trees, um, your the capital value drops from agricultural value and let's say you know eight to ten thousand pounds an acre to a uh, a, a much lower level of three thousand pounds an acre. but but actually as these markets are developing, um, I think that differential is is much, much less and actually in in some cases it's completely gone and the, the land with trees planted is actually worth more than it was uh, as agricultural land. Um, but policies like the one I just mentioned, biodiversity net gain, we don't really know what kind of effect a long-term agreement will have on capital values yet because it's, it's untested. Um, but um, the reassurance we're giving uh, landowners is if there is a, a very clear long-term income stream from entering into that agreement and you know in rough figures we think it could be over 500 pounds a hectare a year um, then then that's quite profitable compared with a lot of farming so why should the the capital value be be reduced but like i said uh, we need banks um, to accept those kind of arguments. It's, it's a fascinating area. And Bealby, if I can just turn to you um, from a, an estate's point of view, clearly you, you've been doing a lot of environmental works over a long period of time and you take a long-term view of, over the, the, the planning around the estate. What's your take on natural capital and um, how do you see the estate managing its own natural capital assets going forward? Um, well, I suppose at the end of the day, um, we're all farms and estates, we're all businesses. Uh, and so we've got to re respond to the uh, 
um, incentives put in front of us. Uh, I feel pretty lucky to be taking over at a time when the political direction of travel uh, is moving very decidedly towards the environment. Um, and so we are looking very closely at, at, at the, the, the natural capital opportunities um, in front of us. And, and that also marries with my uh, interest. So for me, it's, it sits incredibly well. Um, but I suppose that the next step is, you know, well, what is the next step? Where do you go from there? And it's, it's quite difficult uh, to develop a vision based on all this whole plethora of funding incentives out there, potentially out there, out there with no flesh on the bones. Um, and so in, instead for us, it's been much easier to look at the holding uh, and work out what, what best suits the land. Um, you know, is that feel wet and unproductive? And was it historically grazing marsh? Well, maybe it doesn't want to be cropped anymore uh, and would much rather go back to being a habitat for waders. Um, and so over the course of the, the summer, um, we've built uh, an estate mapping terrier. Um, so we now have the ability to overlay layers, including historic maps, um, our existing ecology. Um, uh, we've got our own land grading assessment, water, woodland, and so on. Um, and then look at that in the context of the wider landscape uh, to deter opportunities lie. Um, so this mapping exercise has been incredibly helpful um, uh, and really focused our attention um, for we're in phase two of, of the biodiversity net gain pilot um, and it's really helped us determine the sorts of habitats we would hope to create uh, and in the sorts of areas and going forward I'm hoping um, to use that to, to define a, a wider vision for the whole estate uh, over the next 30 years. Uh, tell us some more about the the net gain pilot that you're you're um, currently working on. Um, so this was something we uh, applied for last year. Um, they're doing it in two phases. So the first phase used metric 2.0 uh, and it was quite it was quite speedy and quite broad brush stroke. Um, so basically it looked at the existing habitats which has been brilliant for us. So we've got a, a baseline survey. Um, and then it looked at uh, potential future habitats uh, uh, and that's created the, the potential number of units. Um, uh, and then a habitat management plan on the back of that. But as I say, it was quite quick, quite broad brushstrokes. Natural England were really using it um, as a platform on which to uh, work out issues, problems with metric 2.0, the sorts of costs that might be associated with developing these projects, number of surveys and studies that need to go into them. Uh, and now we're going into phase two, um, where we've been given much more control, much more of a steer, uh, and uh, we're, we're looking to really develop these projects and ho hopefully bring some of them towards uh, an investment ready stage. We're not tied into anything, um, 
So, you know, if the money doesn't look right, if the costs don't look right, if we decide something doesn't work for us, if, for example, there's no APR on biodiversity net gain land, we might look not to carry out those projects, but it's really helped us focus our minds on where the, the risks are and the opportunities are from things like BNG and, and other potentials coming forward. Have you started to put a monetary value on some of the works you've been doing? Obviously, you've gathered a lot of information and data and you know a lot about the costs going forward. Does that help you then build up a bit of a business case as to know at what point does it become commercially viable for you for you to do this? I mean, really, we're at, at, at too early a stage to, to, to work out the source of monetary values over that, the whole piece. But um, I've I've done an exercise on a on a small area and tried to work out the likely costings over the the next thirty years, and that was to uh, to transition some pretty heavy clay land to a, a, a lowland meadow and, and woodland type habitat, a wood meadow type habitat, uh, and at, 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 at ten grand a unit. Um, things did not look good and we would have been better off carrying on farming. But at 15 grand a unit, they they look fantastic and very rosy. So I, I think we'll just have to see what comes um, in terms of whether these are the sort of projects you want to take, take the plunge with. Yeah, fascinating to, to hear how that pilot is developing. Understanding the environmental footprint of your business has never been more important. Strutton Parker is collaborating with leading environmental economist FTEC to produce natural capital accounts for farms and estates. These accounts will help you understand the environmental impact of your business, pinpoint where improvements can be made, and identify opportunities to sell carbon credits. To find out more, visit struttonparker.online forward slash natural hyphen capital. If I can bring you back in from a from a policy perspective, you know the government is really driving forward the natural capital agenda. Tell us some more. We've already touched upon some of the proposals around biodiversity net gain, but but there's a lot of activity, policy activity around this area. Yeah, there is, and I think it's um, you know, part of the problem is trying to make it all gel together. I mean, I think the the big one is obviously the environmental land management schemes. When the ELM schemes were first announced, they were um, talked about as being based on a natural capital approach so based on basically paying farmers and land managers sort of a contract to deliver environmental outcomes um, based on kind of managing and improving their natural capital so the theory of natural capital and the, the sort of policy of ELM fit together quite well I think the issue is how much that's what it's actually shaping up to look like um, in practice you know, paying for environmental outcomes, for example, is quite difficult because how do you measure them? How do you account for other variables that could affect whether something is delivered or not on the land? Um, and I think that it's it's definitely one step removed from what previous government schemes have looked like. So um, our view is that so, some parts of the ELM scheme, uh, the higher bits, you know, higher uh, lo local nature recovery scheme and the land landscape recovery scheme, 
um, will definitely support this agenda. And I think the landscape recovery scheme, particularly, which is the sort of the highest tier of the of the ELM schemes, um, which is looking at sort of large scale changes in land use for for carbon and, and wildlife. Um, and that's it's very early days. They're looking to pilot the first of those schemes later this year. Um, but they're looking at um, combining public and private finance. So uh, looking at projects, quite large scale projects with partnerships of different organizations involved. So it might be several neighboring landowners and some conservation organizations or, or water companies or local authorities, for example, could all join together to do a, a large scale project. Um, so that's that's one avenue that the government is is sort of putting into practice or could be putting into practice. Um, I think the other side is is in really trying to develop these um, private markets that don't really involve the government. But I think we we think certainly as a CLA that the government has a role to support the development. So one thing that that's needed is kind of proof of concepts, so proof that that land based environmental projects like the sort of habitat creation that Bailey was talking about. They, that they could represent something that investors are willing to put money into. Uh, so the Environment Agency have started a investment readiness fund, they've called it, uh, which is giving money to projects to basically build the business case for why they could produce revenue from environmental payments. Uh, so things like that, I think we need to see a lot more of. It's proving the concept, proving that uh, natural capital, you know, as well as, as giving information about the relationship between the business and the environment and, and the opportunities that it can actually lead to um you know revenue and, and, and contracts and payments uh, so i think you know the cla has been involved in um a group called financing uk nature recovery which is a coalition of organizations looking at what needs to be in place to develop these private environmental markets um, a lot of it is about kind of standard ways of measuring things uh, governance, making sure that those involved in these markets are, are credible and, and know what they're doing, um, that you know, transparency as well. I think it's, you know, once you sell a unit of carbon or a unit of biodiversity, how do you avoid being able to sell the same unit twice or, or uh, avoid double funding? So there's, there's lots of things that need to be in place to make the market function. Uh, and that's the, the hard work, I'd say, that the government can really um, get involved in. But in the meantime, I think there's a lot of, uh, as I say, biodiversity net gain, environmental land management, some of these um, sort of pilot funds and, and uh, pathfinder funding could could help, but there's a lot more to do. Yeah, f fascinating. And, and picking up on that point around measuring, and, and Jason, if I can bring you back in, I know you've been doing some research in this area. Tell us more about the whole process of measuring and, and trying to put a value. Have, have you made any progress on that? Yes, I think I think so. The, the, the principles of how you do it are, are well established. And there's now a, a British standard on natural capital accounting, uh, which is really good news. It gives, uh, I think, buyers and also sellers, landowners, uh, much more reassurance that if they're going to try and do this kind of measurement, it's done in a consistent way and uh, what they produce um, will be accepted, hopefully, by government or by bodies like the environment agency or, or private sector bodies um, and in, in terms of being able to measure individual things like uh, carbon emissions or carbon sequestration um, again I think the methodology is pretty set um, the science changes occasionally and the kind of um, uh, amounts that are used 
for or, or values that are used for uh, a ton of carbon change um, but they they change in all markets um, i think the the thing that's trickiest to measure um, in in these accounts is probably biodiversity uh, and that's because um, the value of biodiversity changes depending on the rarity of uh, of what you're looking at you know if you have got the last remaining dodo in uh, in Wales, it's more valuable than if there were a uh, hundred thousand of them left in in Wales. Um, but metrics like the one Belby mentioned earlier, the the DEFRA biodiversity metric that's used for biodiversity net gain, uh, are, are helping with those kind of measurements. But uh, other things like health, recreation, uh, air quality. Um, uh, and to some, to a lesser extent, uh, water quality and quantity, um, you can measure and you can put a value against. Uh, and the importance of doing that is it, for the first time, for a lot of people, it enables you to compare your financial returns with the environmental costs uh, and the social costs or benefits. I was just going to ask a, uh, Jason a question off the back of that. Yeah, by all means, go ahead. Yeah, J Jason, I think as a as a landowner, we're, we're it's been suggested, you know, we should get our baseline surveys in place, uh, left, right and centre. Doing a full natural capital account seems like quite an expensive um, and uh, and a not hugely tan, not and doesn't seem to provide hugely tangible outcomes. So I was wondering if you think we should be going for the natural capital account or we should just be focusing on getting the more the more tangible baselines, be that ecology, carbon, water, air quality. Um, I, I mean, wh where do you sit on that, given the costs associated with all this? Uh, it's a very, it's a very good question. Um, and natural capital accounts can be can be quite pricey to produce, depending on you know the number of enterprises on uh, a piece of land uh, and and the scale. Um, I suppose what what the account. Um, does give you um, is uh, an ability to, like I said, compare financial value with environmental value with social value that individual um, surveys or, or layers of data wouldn't be able to give you. Um, and um, the, the clients who've commissioned them from us, I, I suppose um, they've told us that there, there are probably about three main benefits that they see. Um, the, the first one is um, it helps them answer questions that they might have, like, uh, am I net zero? And what could I do to reduce my uh, environmental impact? They're good questions. Um, the, the second thing it helps with is long term strategy. You know, so, for example, um, if I want to become net zero, what do I have to do? Quite often the answer is um, put more land into forestry, uh, reduce emissions. If you've got peatland, uh, reduce emissions from the peatland. So make sure it's in a good recovering state. Um, so it, it starts answering questions about uh, proportions of different land uses and whether you should think about changing them. Uh, and also, you know, for a lot of landowners who um, don't farm the land or manage the land in hand, they've got tenants, it, it starts posing questions to them about should I relet it if the tenancy comes to an end, or 
should I be start having conversations with my tenants now uh, about what they're doing, perhaps carbon footprinting with them, uh, and then discussing um, whether there's an appetite for any change in land use. And then, you know, like you've mentioned, I think the third main benefit is it identifies opportunities for generating profits or, or, or it creates a marketing angle for you to be able to say that uh, if you come and visit this estate, um, all our activities in total are carbon net zero or in, in fact, we're sequestering more carbon than, than we're emitting. And Jason, I guess you've touched upon a number of drivers for, for change there. And it possibly would be interesting to know your thoughts around the driver of change coming from the food supply chain and the expectation by the consumer that the food is produced to, to, to a low or, or net zero carbon footprint. Uh, we've seen some of the major supermarkets make make um, uh, commitments in the future that their, that their food supply chains should meet that target. And there's a balance to be struck because sometimes if, if farmers choose to sell certain carbon credits or enter into offsetting schemes, then that is taken out of the of the net zero equation when when their own produce comes into question. Exactly. I think that's a big challenge. And that's that's why we tend to um, urge, uh, sorry, urge caution um, before you start thinking about selling credits um, that you might have uh, people who buy what you're producing, who who want assurances about how it's produced, the emissions associated with it. Um, and quite often uh, on farms and estates, it, it's a matter of offsetting farming emissions with storage uh, of, uh, of carbon elsewhere, you know, most typically woodlands and, and peatland. Uh, so you're right. And, and we're, we're finding uh, that some uh, clients who commissioned these kind of accounts are doing it because they want to be able to tell that emission story to their to the people buying the food they produce that that what they're buying is coming from a, a net zero or carbon positive uh, business uh, and Harry, if I can just bring you in there quickly, uh, some of the uh, the environmental opportunities and, and and the Elm scheme, for example, that we discussed, is that principally going to be geared towards larger landowners? And, and you know, what about the smaller farmers? Because some of the some of the outcomes that the government is seeking is is landscape scale, particularly when, when there's there's multiple funding um, sources to support those schemes. Where where do smaller landowners sit in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that um, particularly the the Elm scheme is designed with large landowners in mind. I think that there's a variation for the different schemes. So there's three different schemes: the sustainable farming incentive, uh, local nature recovery scheme, and landscape recovery. Uh, certainly, the landscape recovery scheme is is designed to fund projects on a large scale. So 500 to 5,000 hectares, I think, is the the range. Um, but that can be with collaboration, so it could be groups of, of farmers or land managers working together. Um, but I also think that you know that scheme is not necessarily for everyone because it's it's also likely to involve land use change away from agriculture. Um, so for our you know something the CLA is very alive to, you know many of our members are smaller conventional farmers, and so we are looking at what what this means for them. Um, I think within the LM certainly the sustainable farming incentive is. Is geared towards all farmers. It's specifically been designed to um, to incentivize and pay for actions that, that essentially any farmer can take. Um, so it's split up according to um, different environmental assets. So there's you know hedgerows, soils, grassland, arable, 
Um, so if you fall into any of those categories, which most people do, then uh, it shouldn't be harder for a, a small farmer to enter into. I think for some of the private sector uh, opportunities uh, in terms of things like biodiversity net gain or, or other contracts from uh, offset, carbon offsets, for example, I think that there may be an advantage at the moment for larger landowners simply because the market's so new. So at the moment, it's often people who are taking advantage of these opportunities are often doing so because they are sort of um, proactively going out and, and looking for them or taking advantage of of pilots or of, of sort of fairly innovative uh, projects and ideas. So there is a level of risk there. Obviously, our hope, and I spoke earlier about what the government needs to do, that you know, the government provides certainty and if the markets get off the ground, then there will be scope for people to sort of essentially package up environmental contracts in a way that's easy for any any farmer or land manager to take advantage of, um, whether that's a, a broker or, or a middleman that can uh, do the hard work, some of what Beverly's been describing, the kind of um, testing what works, constructing the contract, measuring, if that's all fairly straightforward and can be packaged up into something that's very easy for any farmer to, to go into, basically saying, this is what you need to do on this piece of land and this is how much you get paid per acre to do it, then I think it will be accessible to everyone, but that's going to take a little bit more time. But we're already seeing it. I think, you know, we're in conversation with several organisations that are, that are sort of forging ahead with this and, and are trying to create a package or an offer um, in terms of private contracts, which is available for anyone, basically, that, that's, that's really easily accessible. And, you know, it may even be more attractive than some government schemes if there's less bureaucracy or, or more flexibility or, or higher payment rate. Um, so so that's that's one aspect of it. I think there's, um, you know, for some smaller farmers I, as well, I think it slightly depends on how much they're willing or interested in in changing and adapting their business. I mean, I think for one thing, most farming businesses will have to change because of the change in public policy and the move away from, from BPS. Um, so now is probably the time to start taking stock of, of your business, including thinking about your sort of natural capital assets, not necessarily doing a whole natural capital accounting um, exercise, but at least being aware of, of what bits of land could deliver carbon or could deliver for wildlife or water and then just be open sort of open to either government or private sector schemes when they come along so there's there's things people can do to prepare to take advantage of this now uh, and after all i mean as i said at the beginning i think agri-environment schemes are essentially an example of being paid for for delivering environmental services and plenty of small farms have engaged with those over the years so uh, as long as they're constructed in a way that that are easy to access and don't have a lot of bureaucracy or require a lot of sort of difficult technical um, information or studies or, or, or surveys um, or if they do that those should be paid for as part of the scheme. And Bealby have you started to look at the the Elm scheme and how does that fit in with what you're trying to to do on the estates particularly you know over the next 10 years or so? Well it's it, interesting you mentioned the Elm scheme because specifically when thinking about Elms I, I see it as being uh, one of our our biggest challenges and um, potentially uh, leading to um, some of the, the biggest uh, changes over the next decade or so. Um, 
and and that's how we're going to approach our farming operations uh we've been using uh, we've been farming using uh contract farming arrangements on the home farm for about the past 20 years and once bps is lost um uh, and looking at the direction of travel uh, in the SFI pilot prescriptions, I'm struggling to see how these uh, arrangements will work uh, unless you're lucky enough to find a contract farmer out there who's more interested in environmentally sensitive farming uh, than you are. Um, so that that that's that's um, yeah. I mean, with regard to Elm, that, that that's a big big issue to confront um but more more broadly over the next decade um i think our our focus on the environment on on uh the broader natural capital of the estate will only grow with time um at present our i think our conservation work is very much carried out within the confines of of our wider boundaries um, at the edges of fields within the within the boundaries of uh, Skitwith Common Natural Nature Reserve. Um, everything's very clearly defined, but over the next decade, uh, I'd like to see ourselves take a, a more, um, much more holistic land management approach. Um, and I hope this will involve uh, looking beyond ourselves and collaborating with our neighbours, for example, perhaps to link Skitwith Common to um, the Lower Derwent Ings, which is a, a, another national nature reserve very close by, uh, buffering the common um, with sensitive land management practices or, or, uh, or uh, uh, habitat types, um, perhaps um, quite uh, significant extents of, of arable reversion on mar marginal lands uh, and inviting um, greater public involvement in the in in the in the estate. Um, so, I mean, uh, broadly speaking, I see some areas of land being dedicated entirely to nature um, and others continuing to be farmed, but in a in a more sensitive fashion. And I think from a a commercial perspective, um, you know, within uh, 10 years, as well as making the estate a more desirable place to work and live, I hope these um, environmental initiatives which come forward can see us beginning to stack other income streams on, on, on top, be that glamping or wildlife safaris or, or, or whatever else. Um, so yeah exciting times ahead i think <laughs> very much so and as a final question jason before we wrap this podcast up what would be your advice to cla members on the actions that they can take to survive the upcoming changes to the agricultural and land use sector uh, well i think i think belby and harry have um summarized them really well already i, I think a a really in-depth review of your enterprises now the, the kind of approach that Belby just talked about sounds excellent. Uh, and then um, run calculations to understand how the cut in basic payments is going to affect your profits. Um, we're all surprised at how few people have actually done that. 
and their calculators available to help you do that and not just look at farming profits but also the profits you make from diversification and uh, agri-environment uh, and of course from farming again like Belby's just said I think only farm where it's profitable to do so uh, and again that, that takes a degree of honesty uh, and also identify where you can farm where it doesn't damage the environment or it reduces any environmental damage um, uh, and then finally write down what you're willing to do so for example it's very easy to recommend um, increasing the number of trees you've got or, or woodland planting but it's it might not be desirable to everyone and then once you've got all that um, you can work out how much profit you're likely to make how much profit you'd like to make uh, and then make a plan on on how you actually deliver it well, well jason thank you very much for summarizing your, your concluding thoughts there and, and thank you very much to harry uh and bielby as well for your input it's been fascinating wide-ranging discussion and i think it's all about striking the right balance but natural capital is something we're going to be talking a lot more about it's a new language new terminology possibly for some that we're going to be picking up very very quickly uh, but thank you once again to all our guests harry greenfield the cla senior land use policy advisor bielby forbes adam of the Eskrig park estate in North Yorkshire and Jason Bedell, Director of Research at Stratton Parker. Thank you all very much indeed. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode.